Always I bump into weird people and that's been the pattern in my life. And all these thoughts were running in her head. And all of a sudden, uh, the call for his flight came. He got up and he was about to leave. There was just one cookie there, the last one in the pack. And very generously, there was a stalemate there, but very generously, he looked at the cookie. He broke it exactly into two halves, gave one half to her, ate the other half, and he walked away to his gate. And she ate the other half, and then she was, she was very uh, livid. She was angry about this. And she was angry, and her, she was stewing, and all of a sudden, she gets into her air- airplane, and uh, she sat, sits in her seat, and she wants to plan as to what to do at, at her destination. So she wants to write down a list of two-two things. She puts her hand into her purse, and then, lo and behold, she finds the pack of cookies that she had bought completely unopened. And then she thinks to herself that she'd been very rude with him and even said some things sarcastically to him, but he had all the while generously and with a kind heart shared his cookies with her, even to the last thing where he broke it into two exact halves and gave one half to her and ate one half himself. Perspective is everything, isn't it? Perspective is everything. Every decision we make is based on a worldview that reflects our understanding of reality. Did you hear that? Every decision we make is based on a perspective, on a set of lenses through which we look at the world, called the worldview, that shows other people what we think of reality, or what we think of the world, or how we view the world. And one of the most crucial lessons to learn in this sin-contaminated world is for us to know how to handle prosperity and how to handle adversity. How to handle prosperity and how to handle adversity as well. So the questions come up. When you suffer today and when you go through tough times, how are you going to handle it? Or when God gives you a lot of wealth, when God gives you prosperity and a lot of money, how are you going to handle that? Or better, let me put both of these together and say this. What do you and I this morning need to understand about prosperity and adversity to have the right perspective about them so we can handle them in the most godly perspective possible? What do you and I need to understand about prosperity and adversity both So we have the right perspective about them, and you and I can in turn handle both adversity and prosperity in the most biblical way. Solomon here in this particular passage begins by exposing our ignorance of the significance of both adversity and prosperity. And both of these conditions, as noted by Solomon, can have both good and bad effects in the life of each and every person seated here. He is saying that depending on how a person responds to prosperity, depending on how a person responds to adversity, they will in turn have that kind of an effect on their lives. So it all depends on your response. And Solomon is saying that prosperity is not always or necessarily good. And adversity or affliction is not always or necessarily bad. 
It all depends on how you respond to uh, adversity. It all depends on how you respond to affliction. It all uh, depends on how you respond to prosperity. So you and I need to have a perspective. You and I need to have a worldview as we live in this world as Christians to handle prosperity, to handle affliction and adversity in the most biblical way possible. You know, uh, when we share the gospel sometimes, we begin with questions about death, and rightly so, because questions about death are important. At the end of the day, every one of us is going to die, and so we ask the question, where do you think you would spend eternity, or what do you think would happen to you after you die? But I was wondering, what about a person who is about 25 years old, who is an IM graduate from Bangalore, IM Bangalore here, who's got a big offer letter, promising lakhs of rupees. And I don't think he's worried about his death as much as he's stressed about life. He's stressed about his life. And so this morning's message and our message ought to be that Jesus can give you life right now as much as he can give you life after death. Jesus can give you life right now as much as he can give you life after death. And so... Jesus said this. He said, I am come that you may have life and life in abundance. I am come that you may have life and life to the full. So life in Jesus isn't just about beating death, but it's also having a fulfilled life right now. It's also knowing how to live right now. It's also having a better life right now. That means you commit your life to Christ and you have a better life. And when you die, you spend eternity with him. Jesus and Jesus alone gives purpose and meaning and power for life now as well as life after death as well. So today's passage will reveal to us four things that you and I need to understand this morning. Four things that you and I need to understand about prosperity and adversity to have the right perspective about them so we can deal with them and handle them in the most biblical way possible. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. Okay, don't get ahead of me, please. I'll do it, okay? Thank you. So, in in verses 1 through 6, you will see that adversity, taken in the right perspective, is of great benefit to us. Adversity, taken with the right worldview, or seen in the right lenses, is of great benefit to us, or great advantage to us. Suffering is inevitable. And either you trust God to work and use our suffering in our lives to walk us through it, and when we trust God, we are wise. Or we could be like fools. We could anesthetize ourselves and try to repel suffering, but the fact of the matter is we cannot escape suffering. No matter what perspective we come from, you and I cannot escape suffering. And one day, you and I need to face the eventuality of suffering, which is death. And Solomon here is helping us to meditate on the potential instructiveness of both suffering and death. So, he has three things for us as he unpacks this truth. Firstly, Solomon says, a good reputation until death is very crucial. A good reputation until death is very crucial. Look at verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. 
A good name, he says, is better than a precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. You know, we all have our favorite smells. We all have our favorite flavors of perfumes, and that's why we smell the way we do. But we also have some smells that we detest, that, that we don't like. And Solomon here is saying that your name has a smell too. Your reputation has an aroma too. Because back in his day, in the context in which Solomon is writing this in, people used to use ointments and perfumes to mask odors, especially body odors. And Solomon's point here is, don't just do a cover-up. What's most important is not what you smell like, but what your reputation smells like. What do people think about you? What do people think about me? That is what is important, is what Solomon is saying here. And that won't be fully known until the last chapter is written in each of our books, and each of our books is closed. And that's why Solomon here is emphasizing that the day of our death is better than the day of our birth. And what's more important is not your name given to you at birth, but the name that we achieve when we die. What will people talk about us at our funerals? What will people have to say about us when they come to see us lying in a casket? Because over the course of your lifetime, your name or the value of your name or your reputation either increases or or it decreases. And that's called your reputation. So Solomon here is emphasizing the point that your funeral is more important than your birthday party. Now notice this. We all celebrate the first birthday of a child in grand style, and rightly so, and we ought to. Uh, We ought to be thankful for one year of God's faithfulness in the life of a child. We ought to be thankful for the gift of life itself that God has given us. And we look forward to a life that is yet unlived. But Solomon's point here is looking back on a life that is well lived is much better than looking forward to a life that is yet unlived. Did you hear that? Looking back to a life that has been well lived is much better than looking forward to a life that is yet unlived. So let me ask you a few questions this morning, and I ask you this as I ask myself. What's associated with your name? What do people think about you as they think of your name? How are you thought of? How will you be remembered? And how do you want to be remembered? The most wonderful thing that we have this morning is that if you've not had a good reputation, we have forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And you need to come to God for forgiveness, but you need to get busy to acquire that good name or reputation. But But if you've already got one, If you've already got a good name or a good reputation, you and I must strive hard under God's grace to keep up that reputation and keep it that way. But the point that Solomon is making here is that he's asking each one of us this question, what do you want written on your tombstone? What do you want written on your tombstone? Because your day of death is better than your day of birth because it reveals who you actually are. It reveals who you actually are. Secondly, and very quickly, Solomon says that recognition of the brevity of life is necessary. Recognition of the brevity of life is necessary. Look at verses 2 through 4. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. 
If you had to choose between going to a funeral home this evening and going to a party, a free party at Ritz-Carlton, which one would you rather choose? Now, there isn't really a choice there, isn't it? Let's not try to be very spiritual here. Well, let me at least speak for myself, and I speak on your behalf as well. I would go to Ritz-Carlton this evening for the party. But the fact of the matter is, Solomon here is saying that it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Most of us don't like to think about death. Woody Allen, very, uh, he, he once quipped in a very cynical way. He said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. I'm not afraid to die, but I just don't want to be there when it happens. Because death inevitably reminds us about the brevity of life, how short our life is. And every funeral that we attend anticipates our own funeral. And we are here this morning seated, each one of us is seated here, because we have not died yet. The fact of the matter is, there is going to be a time when you and I will be laid in a casket, and that will be our moment to leave the world. But death is an alarm clock. It wakes us up. We may attempt to live in denial of it, but the fact of the matter is, each one of us has an appointment with death, and it will come sooner or later in this world. And Solomon's point here is this. It's wise to prepare for death because facing death prepares us for life. It is wise to prepare for death because facing death prepares us for life. Solomon here is not saying that we need to go through life with a morbid outlook. But he is saying that we need to take death seriously. We only have one life in which we can love a child, in which we can train our child, we can love our spouse and glorify God in our ministries and in everything that we do. And we have to live this life for the glory of God. Look over your schedules over the last one week. As I look at my own schedule, does it indicate that you're wisely investing your life or you're just throwing it away? What does our schedule indicate about how we think about life? Now, Solomon here reverses our value system. Look at verse 3 here. Solomon is saying, sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter. He's not suggesting that we don't laugh or enjoy life or have a good time. He is warning us not to take life frivolously. He is warning us not to take life in a shallow way without understanding what life is actually about. Because fools do that is what Solomon's point is. It is fools who go to the bar. It is fools who go clubbing. They sit around, they waste time, they numb themselves with entertainment and technology because they don't want to deal with what reality is. Everyone is going to die. You are going to die, I'm going to die. One day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we better be prepared for that day. And Solomon is saying that recognition of the brevity of life is absolutely necessary. Thirdly, Solomon says, correction of the wise is indispensable. Correction by the wise is indispensable. Look at verses 5 and 6. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. We all love being complimented, right? You know, we love it when people come and tell us that we are smart or, or, or we look good or even we smell good, or things like that. Just the other day, I was uh, looking at one of the brothers here, one of the dear brothers, and I said, you've slimmed down a lot. And he's like, yes, thank you for telling me that. He liked that compliment, and he thought it was a compliment. So the, f- 
All of us love to be praised. But the fact of the matter is, that's not always best for us. That's not always best for us. It's a difference between having a coach and having a fan. What do fans do? Fans usually don't have knowledge of helping uh, the batsman or the bowler or the player to improve. They are just enamored with the player. They may gush compliments on the person. No matter what he does, right or wrong, they just shower compliments on the person. But a coach is somebody who looks at your areas of improvement, who looks at your faults and where you need to improve, and gently corrects you and puts you on the right course. So we need individuals in our life. And Solomon is saying not anyone and everyone. He has a qualifier here. He is saying the rebuke of the wise the rebuke of the wise. You and I need to have godly, wise friends in our lives who encourage us when we need it and who also rebuke us when we need it. Who encourage us when we need it and who also rebuke us when we need it. Correction is not a nicety, it is a necessity. If our lives wear off course and we continue in that wrong direction, It can result in the shipwreck of our faith. And some of us seated here may be on that path and may not even know that we have veered off the track. And we need friends. We need godly men. We need godly sisters to rise up. It's not easy to do, but we must rebuke. We must correct in love. We must correct in wisdom. And uh, Solomon here is asking us to do that. Now notice verse 6. Solomon is comparing this with the crackling of thorns under a pot. People in Palestine burned dry thorn bushes when they wanted a small amount of quick heat. But the fact of the matter is, that small amount of heat could not produce enough heat and enough high temperature to cook food. So that couldn't be used for cooking food for a sustained amount of time. The point here, the parallel that Solomon is drawing is, merriment of the worldly crowd gives only temporary relief. Joy or happiness from the world gives only some kind of a temporary relief. It doesn't solve any problems or bring about a change for the better in the life of anybody. But rebuke from a wise man, rebuke from a godly man is far more valuable. A good rebuke is a compliment turned inside out. That's what Solomon's point is. Correction of the wise is indispensable. So in verses 1 through 6, we saw that adversity taken in the right perspective, is of great benefit to us. Solomon has been saying so far that there's great value in looking at pain and suffering from the right perspective, from the biblical perspective. But are there any warnings that we need to heed? Are there any warnings that you and I need to be aware of about adversity and prosperity? Do adversity and prosperity, as we deal with them, do they put us in a dangerous place? And Solomon is answering that question in our second point, which is in verses 7 through 10. They say that adversity and prosperity both tempt us to abandon a wise lifestyle. Do you hear that? Adversity and prosperity, both of them tempt us to abandon a wise lifestyle and espouse the lifestyle of fools. There are serious invitations in both prosperity and adversity to veer off the right course and live a foolish life. And Solomon here lifts for us four temptations that we might fall into, and he's warning us about those four temptations. And let's go one by one. Firstly, he says, we may be tempted to lose grip on reality. Look at verse 7. Surely, oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Solomon here is picturing a man who is in a high position. 
and who is able to oppress other people because of his position. And he is saying that when people are in such a position, they often think that they are invincible. They become the judges and they profit from their positions in wrong ways. And one of the wrong ways in which they profit from their positions is by taking the bribes that are offered to them. And not just that, when people go and give bribes, they are trying to use the position of the other person and abuse the position of the other person. And Solomon's point here is that if somebody gets away from the, with the first bribe, he will not stop at that. He will go to the second time of taking bribe, a third time, a fourth time, until he is punished for it. And he is saying that it leads somebody or a person who is in that position into deeper corruption. So we must be careful with that. Solomon is saying that we may be tempted to lose grip on reality. We may be tempted to lose grip on reality. What happened to this? Okay. Reality. (laughs) Secondly, we may be tempted to become frustrated. Look at verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, there are many of us seated here and many people out there in the world as well who enjoy talking about starting a new project and who always enjoy starting new ventures as well. Many people like to start new things, but it's very few people who last till the end of things or who last till the project is finished, who persevere and are patient till the project is finished. People have great ideas, but they will not put it to work to make the idea come to pass. Work, wisdom is that we work and we complete the tasks that we have begun. And Solomon is saying here that patience is needed to be able to finish the task and to get to the end of any matter. Patience is required to bring anything to completion. Impatience can cause wise people to do foolish things. Impatience can cause wise people to do foolish things. Notice verse 8 here. Verse 8 is packed with very powerful insights and we must notice that. Solomon is connecting pride and impatience together. Pride is an aspect of humility. So why do I get impatient? Often it's because I think I deserve better. I think I deserve better. And one recent survey has found that people with lesser education and lesser income are much more patient than graduates and people who have a higher income. That's a recent survey that has said that. So in times of adversity, if I think I deserve better, it's very easy for me to become irritated with people around me and ultimately with God as well. And all this while, my primary interest has been in getting what I want from uh, from life for my own self and for my own selfish agendas. It usually ends in impatience. Self-centeredness, Solomon says, and impatience, they both go together. And so do humility and patience as well. And patience comes from waiting on God's timing rather than being frustrated. Richard Hendricks has once said this, and listen to this please. Second only to suffering. Waiting may be the greatest teacher and trainer in godliness, maturity, and genuine spirituality most of us ever encounter. He is saying waiting on God. Waiting is a second greatest teacher, and it trains us in godliness and all of these things. God is trying to build patience in us. Because our life as a Christian is a marathon. It's not a 100-meter sprint. 
And God is trying to build patience in us. So we'll go the distance in our marriages. We'll go the distance in our ministries. We'll go the distance in raising our kids as well. And so we may be tempted and become frustrated with adversity and pain. And we ought to take that warning. Thirdly, we may be tempted to become angry. Look at verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Impatience that we just talked about, it offers way to anger. And verse 9 follows logically on the heels of verse 8 that we just read. It is foolish to have a meltdown every time something goes wrong. It is foolish to have a meltdown every time things don't work our way. We only harm ourselves and don't improve the situation. It also robs us of the peace and the grace to persevere in adversity and blur out clear thoughts and it will not allow us to think properly in times of adversity. Now Solomon here gives us a shot in the ribs by saying this. Look at verse 9. He says, anger lodges in the heart of fools. Now that's not a compliment. One of the simplest indicators of whether we trust in God and his timing is to watch how angry we get and how often we, we are angry at things when things don't go our way. And Proverbs continually warns us about anger. In fact, Proverbs 14:17 says, A man of quick temper acts foolishly. A man of quick temper acts foolishly. So usually we tell ourselves we have the right to be angry. This is a right time for me to be angry. But Ecclesiastes, particularly this verse, sees our anger for what it really is. It calls it immaturity. It calls it foolishness. And there's also an underlying mistrust in the sovereignty of God. As soon as we feel our impatience rising, we need to ask God for the grace to give us peace and keep us from the folly of rash anger. We may be tempted to become angry. Fourthly, we may be tempted to lose our perspective. Look at verse 10. Say not, why were, the, uh, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this question. This simply means that you will never be able to handle the difficulties of today if you're still longing for yesterday. You will never be able to handle the difficulties and problems of today if you're still thinking about yesterday and longing for yesterday. God can't give us grace for today if we are looking back at where we came from rather than where we are going. Most of us exaggerate the adversity of today and are nostalgic about yesterday, but yesterday had its own struggles too. And we often forget that. Have you ever noticed that those who grumble about how bad today is were grumbling about yesterday as well and yesterday's problems? Remember the children of Israel? When they were brought to a tight situation in their 40-year journey in the wilderness, they wanted to go back to Egypt and they forgot there were slaves there. They had been slaves there. Winston Churchill once said this, when the past argues with the present, there cannot be a future. When the past argues with the present, there cannot be a future. Those who are nostalgic about the past really don't want to go back there. The problem with dwelling on the past is that we whitewash it, we sugarcoat it, and miss the opportunities and blessings of the present. God wants us to depend on us today. Uh, sorry, God wants us to depend on him today, and he wants us to make the best of today. We may be tempted to lose our perspective. So adversity and uh, prosperity come with temptations, 
And there are four temptations that Solomon has talked about here. So, so far, we've looked at two things about adversity and prosperity. First thing, Solomon said that adversity, taken in the right perspective, is of great benefit to us. Secondly, he said adversity and prosperity both tempt us to abandon a wise lifestyle. Now, the question comes up in our minds. Since there are so many temptations that are involved in dealing with prosperity, should we completely shun prosperity? Should we not talk about wealth at all? Should we not enjoy wealth? Are there no benefits for us in wealth? Solomon explains that in the third point that he's going to talk about, and that is in verses 11 and 12. They say that prosperity with wise behavior brings welfare to us. Prosperity with wise behavior or with wisdom bring welfare to us. So prosperity alone does not bring welfare to us. Prosperity has to go hand in hand with wisdom, God's wisdom, and that will bring welfare or benefit to us. Wisdom, Solomon is saying, is an added boon to prosperity. And he gives us two reasons why. Firstly, he says, wisdom and prosperity both provide protection. Look at verses 11 and the first part of verse 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Notice here, Solomon uses the value of money to get us to see the value of wisdom. We relate to the value of money. And so he is trying to help us understand what the value of wisdom is to, uh, by, by telling us what the value of money is and equating both of these things. He's saying wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing. Money is a good thing, but wisdom is a better one. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. Now notice, the, now, notice what he's saying here. In the Middle East, you need to be in the shadow to protect you from the hot sun. So money and wisdom, both are insurance, is what he's saying here. They both help you protect, yet money never lasts. Even if money is gone, wisdom lasts, and it will help you both in good days and bad days as well. Essentially, what Solomon is saying here is this. To live a good life, you need two things. Money to pay your bills, and wisdom to get you through all of these things. If you get an inheritance, he says it's a good thing. Money is a shelter. It protects you. Things go bad, hard days come, money helps. But only wise people understand the value of wisdom. And wise people understand that wisdom is better than money. Because if you have a lot of money, but don't have wisdom, you may squander all of it, and you may lose all of it and destroy your life. In fact, the Puritans used to say this, that God curses his enemies with riches. God curses his enemies with riches. Secondly, Solomon says, wisdom gives us a longer life. Look at verse 12b, or the second part of verse 12. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wealth can be a very good and helpful thing, as money can help some of life's pains and problems disappear. But wisdom is even more valuable than wealth. In fact, wisdom can save your life. Unlike knowledge, which tells us what is true, wisdom also tells us what to do with that knowledge. And wisdom does not guarantee the absence of hardships in our lives, but it does help us uh, course through and steer through the hardship of this life. Now, for many of us, prosperity is tougher on our souls than adversity. And as Christians, most of us would go through adversity 
easier than we take on our hearts and on our souls prosperity. But the fact of the matter is Solomon is saying that wisdom is the one that will get you through both. It's your compass and enables you to make it, uh, make it in both good times and bad times. Wise people then seek wisdom about all things. They seek wisdom about everything else and they embrace it as a gift from God. And also Solomon is saying wisdom is better than money because it gives a long life for its possessor. A person who avoids foolish lifestyle can live longer. A person who avoids foolish lifestyle can live longer. So, so far, Solomon has said three things about adversity and prosperity. Firstly, he said, adversity, taken in the right perspective, is of great benefit to us. Secondly, he said, adversity and prosperity tempt us to abandon a wise lifestyle. Thirdly, prosperity with wise behavior bring, uh, brings welfare to us. And then there's a final thing he wants us to know on this topic, and that is in verses 13 and 14, the last two verses. They say that God's providence is unchangeable and incomprehensible. If I have to use theological language, God's providence is immutable and inscrutable. But in simpler terms, it is unchangeable and it is incomprehensible as well. God sovereignly directs both adversity and prosperity in our lives. However, we cannot understand why God uses adversity and prosperity in our lives in the way he does. To help us understand this, Solomon has three practical advices for us as he closes this particular portion. Firstly, he says, we cannot change God's ways even if we don't like them. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Though people may not understand and may even find fault with what God has done, with God and his ways, no one can change what God has determined. No one can change what God has ordained. Here Solomon is saying, who can make straight what God has made crooked? Crooked here is not referring to something that is morally out of line. Instead, it is referring to troubles and difficulties in life that we wish were not there. And the right kind of wisdom leads us to consider what God has done. We come to see that everything comes from the hand of God, both prosperity and adversity. And no one can can straighten what God has made crooked. No one can change what God has ordained. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says this. He says, we want not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all of us. I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed on such lines. But since it is abundantly clear that I don't live in such a universe, since I have reasons to believe nevertheless that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. C.S. Lewis is saying that his conception of love needs correction simply because he does not understand the sovereignty of God very well at this point as he was writing it. Secondly, Solomon's point is that we must be happy in the times that God blesses us. First part of verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. This portion of the verse uses the word good twice. And if you have to literally translate this verse, it goes this way, in a good day, be in good. In a good day, being good. 
Solomon is using this to encourage all of us to take advantage of the days of enjoyment, to take advantage of the days of good health and strength and happiness. The English idiom equivalent to this would be, be in the moment. You and I need to enjoy our life when we've been given health, when we've been given children, when we've been given the opportunity and the moments, because those days come from the hand of God as well. It's a recognition that these days come from the hand of God and we must enjoy them to the fullest. Savor them, even as believers. Treasure them. Build memories to sustain hope during the more difficult times. It is wisdom to accept what God sends us. When life is pleasant, when life is happy, we ought to be thankful and we ought to enjoy life to the fullest. Thirdly and lastly, Solomon says, submit to God's sovereignty in adversity. Look at the second part of verse 14. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. When days are bad or when days are good, remember that God has made them both. God has made them both. It all comes from God's hand. And wise people accept that is what Solomon's point is. It's a very tough concept for all of us as Christians. And for some of us, it's a new concept as well. It's certainly not easy. Like Job, we struggle to understand why God uses both adversity and prosperity the way he does. But what Solomon is saying here is that don't think that only good days come from Jesus and bad days don't. Every day is from Jesus. And you can't bend back what Jesus or what God has made crooked. You can't straighten out what God has made crooked. Wisdom will help us navigate through it. Don't get angry. Don't surround yourself with stupid or silly people who will let you sin and never rebuke you. Don't, let, don't just get a lot of food to eat or a lot of alcohol to drink or listen to music and try to avoid what reality is. We must learn to be wise. We must trust God even when we don't understand. Wisdom gives us that perspective so that we can trust our Heavenly Father that he gives both good days and bad days and everything comes from his hand. Now, we know the familiar story of what happened in the 1950s and I'll close in a couple of minutes. Five young missionaries in the 1950s, they tried to bring the gospel to the Oka Indians in Ecuador. And this certainly illustrates the principle of God's goodness. Five of them were killed and what happened next? Many Oka came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and many of them became missionaries as well. Many young people volunteered for missions after hearing about the story of their death. The martyrs' families had long, ongoing ministries. Under the meta-narrative of God's providence, Solomon's point here is that anything can happen, and nobody knows the full good that comes out of any situation. Only God does. Jim Elliot's wife, uh, Elizabeth, she noted that Jim's credo was captured in the words that he had written in his Bible, and that is, can you say it with me? He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So Solomon also tells us that God works through both adversity and prosperity in such a way that man cannot discover anything that will be after him. We cannot discover anything, what will be tomorrow, what will be after us. So for today, we simply trust in God. We should have the wisdom to trust in what God is giving. Submit to the sovereignty of God in adversity. 
So a lot of wisdom from Solomon in four points and 14 verses. What's the point of the entire sermon that we spoke about this morning? The whole passage says that we need to enjoy the times of prosperity and remember in the times of adversity that God is in control. We need to enjoy the times of prosperity, but remember in the times of adversity that God is sovereign and we must submit to his sovereignty. Let me finish with an illustration. It's just a quick two-minute one, and listen to me very carefully, please. And thank you. Uh, you've been very, very attentive. There was a man who uh, had a very tough time with his business, and he was going through a very terrible time, both in terms of finances and in terms of expansion of the scope of his business. And one morning, as he was sitting in, in, a, in a service like this, the preacher was preaching about the sovereignty of God, and he said, for your business to be successful, for you to have the right perspective about your business, you must hand it over to God and leave the ownership to God. And he resolved to give the ownership to God that day. And as he was driving back, he was thinking about it. The, the preacher's sermon was resonating in his ears and in his mind. And he goes back home, kneels by his bedside, and he says, Lord, from today and from this moment, I will give complete lordship complete sovereignty, complete ownership of my business to you. That evening, he gets a phone call. And it says, your factory is burning. It's in flames. And he had to drive there. He gets into his car with a very calm demeanor, like never before. He starts driving towards it. And he calls a couple of his other colleagues and his partners to come to that location as well. And as he goes there, he's the first one to reach there. He's looking at the factory burning, going up in flames. His friend arrives there, looking at his calm demeanor, he looks at him, and he asks the question, what's wrong? He says, nothing's wrong. I just handed over the entire ownership to God. It's God's business. It's, that is what is burning. If he wants to take care of it, he will. The kingdom of God always appears upside down to the human perspective. It always appears upside down to the human perspective. We think it's strange to die in order to live, or to give in order to receive, or to serve in order to lead. Solomon captures the perpetual enigma that when we look through our glasses, these values are as same as what Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount. He insists that we should embrace sorrow over laughter, rebuke over praise, the long way instead of the short way, and today instead of yesterday. And the truth is, it's not the kingdom of God that's upside down, but that is what is straight. It's the world that has got upside down. Thank you for your patience, and we just hope that the Lord has spoken to you. Let's, let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this morning. Thank you for speaking to us from your word, from the writings of Solomon that were written about thousands of years ago. Thank you for helping us understand the significance of both prosperity and adversity, O oh Lord. Thank you for helping us understand both of them come from your hand and how we respond to them in wisdom will have a real bearing of each of those on our lives. Help us to, with the wisdom that you give us, deal with both of these things as they come into our lives because both of them are inevitable. Both come into, your, uh, uh, into our lives from your gracious hand. Prosperity comes to us from you and adversity comes to us from you as well, O oh Lord. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would deal 
with both of these in the right way, as Solomon has taught us this morning. We also pray, O Lord, that uh, the rest of the day would be under your sovereignty, and we would glorify you in everything that we do, in the Sisters' Fellowship, in the Sunday School meeting, as well as uh, the music practice or, or the meeting that they have in the afternoon, O Lord. We pray that everything that we do would be done to the glory and the honor of your name. In Jesus' name. Thank you, David, for bringing God's word to us.